Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. And we are uh, continuing in a sermon series that we've been in uh, for some time now on uh, the, uh, the book of Acts, that story of the first uh, Christian churches. As the church uh, grew from being a small uh, little group of Jesus followers into a movement that spanned the known world. And this morning, uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 15. Uh, this is a meeting that has become known uh, in history as the Jerusalem Council. You know, Christians uh, throughout history and around the world, and we, come our, uh, we find ourselves in the midst of wrestling with a question that we don't have the answer uh, for. There's been the driving conviction that we ought to get together and talk it out because uh, the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of many is more than the wisdom of any one. So if you know church history at all, you know that uh, in the 300s, Christians became, uh, they needed clarity on the doctrine of the Trinity, the Son's relationship to the Father. And so we got the Council of Nicaea. A little later on, they uh, became, they realized they needed some clarity on uh, the divine person of Jesus, right? How could he be divine and human at the same time? So we have the Council of Chalcedon. Well, the story that we have in this uh, story in Acts is the first church council. It was the first time that the church said, hey, we've got a problem on our hands that we need to come together to figure out. And it was a problem that even though they got together to figure it out uh, all those thousands of years ago, that churches still have to work through applying and figuring out in their own day. And the question they uh, were thinking about was this, who's included in the people of God? Who's included in the church and on what basis? How do we know who's on the inside and who's on the outside? And what does somebody have to do to become a member of this community? And so let's uh, let's look at this passage and bring our questions to it. If you uh, are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? The scripture this morning is Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers." And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up, and he said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, 
by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done uh, through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in the Sabbath in the synagogue. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Colson Whitehead is one of uh, my favorite contemporary authors, and uh, his newest book is one called Harlem Shuffle, and it tells the story of a man named Ray Carney living in the 1960s in Harlem, in that period of kind of an ascendant uh, black community in Harlem in the midst of all the social changes that were going on in the 1960s. And Ray is caught uh, in the middle of trying to outrun his past. He was raised by a criminal and often absent father in and out of prison, in and out of some scheme. And yet Ray aspires to respectable society. He started a furniture business uh, selling uh, new furniture in Harlem, selling end tables and TVs and couches. And also on the side... He would sell stolen merchandise and jewelry and things that came across, just trying to make a little something out of himself. But early in the book, I'm not going to spoil much of the book, it's a great book, a symbol of his striving for inclusion in respectable society becomes his desire to be included in the Harlem Black Businessmen's Club. This was a place where he could distance himself, he thought, from the criminality of his family and this pull that he felt towards criminal activity, where he could get the stamp of approval of this respectable professional class. He was even willing, uh, when confronted, and one of the bankers who runs the club comes to him and suggests that maybe if he paid a bribe, he would be allowed into this inner circle. He agrees, and he pays the bribe at some deep cost to himself, hiding the money from his wife only to find himself defrauded, robbed, rejected, and excluded from this businessman's club. It became for him a symbol of his desire to to transcend his lot, his desire to be included in society, and the fact that he just couldn't outrun who he was, that he couldn't outrun the stain of his birth, he couldn't outrun the criminality uh, that seemed to pull at him, And so the rest of the book is him being consumed with a desire for revenge against this man who defrauded him and kicked him out. And 
it doesn't go so well for all involved. Now, uh, it will probably be some relief to know that there are parts of this story that I can't identify with, right? There's parts of this story that seem a world removed from my life as a pastor, and yet uh, there is something that I think all of us can identify with on this desire to be included in a group that we perceive to be desirable, this desire to elevate ourselves beyond our people, to elevate ourselves out of maybe the conditions of our lives, and to reach something higher, to reach inclusion in this group. And I don't know if it's a group of people for you from work, if it's a club. Uh, Maybe it's a group of people that you look at as being more morally upstanding and religious and righteous. Maybe it's a group that are more wealthy and well-off. Maybe it's a group that's just more accepted in society. There's this natural human hunger for inclusion. And every human community, every community, has boundaries, ways of policing. What does it mean to be in and what does it mean to be out? What are the, the, uh, the, what's the basis for belonging in this community? What is the stamp of approval that gets you in or leaves you out? And in this way, we should think of the church as a human community, right? It is a, it's a divine community. It's a fellowship of people who exist by the grace and gift of God. It's a group of people that exist by his will. But everywhere that it finds itself, it's also just normal people. It's men and women and children trying to live their life in a community. And so the church, too, has to wrestle with this question about who's in and who's out And what's the basis by which someone belongs in the people of God? What is the basis of belonging in this fellowship? In the decision that's made here in Acts 15, the decision that's made at the Jerusalem Council was intended to settle this question once and for all, not just for this first century Christian community, but for all subsequent Christian fellowships and churches, what is the basis for belonging? And what we get in this, this, uh, these verses, here through the answers of Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, later through the ratification and sending of a letter to the Gentile churches, is that once and for all, the only basis for belonging in the church of Jesus is the grace of God. Right? The only defining factor of insiders or outsiders is Jesus, right? That to belong to Jesus by faith, to be a sinner who reaches out to him and takes hold of his grace, is all that you need to belong in the people of God, right? That God's family isn't defined by race or culture or ethnicity or class or gender or wealth or poverty, that nothing that we use in human human life to divide Creation to divide God's image bearers ought to divide the church. That there is no other marker other than belonging to Jesus that determines whether or not someone is on the inside of the fellowship or on the outside. If Jesus is the only basis of belonging in the church, then that means that the church, among all families of humanity, of all of the different uh, communities of mankind, the church is uniquely positioned to cross every human barrier, right? To not be defined by ethnicity or class or ideology or party, 
wealth, gender, any of that stuff. That in the church, we ought to be able to look at one another across all of those man-made barriers and place on our lips the same words that Peter speaks here. Across every barrier that divides us, we should be able to say, we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as we will. Right? That whether you're black or white, rich or poor, whether you're old or young, male or female, that you can look at someone different than you and go, you know what? The only basis for belonging, the only basis for inclusion is the grace of Jesus. And you need it and I need it. And if we find it and we can meet each other and we can find each other there in the midst of that grace. Amen. We'll talk a little bit about the crisis that led the church to this moment. Through the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, we've seen a movement where uh, the earliest church, remember the earliest followers of Jesus were Jews. They were members of the people of Israel. They were people who grew up reading the Old Testament, who grew up worshiping in the temple and in the synagogues. They were, if they were men, they were people who were circumcised as a, as a sign of the covenant. They were people who kept the kosher dietary laws. These were a, the earliest followers of Jesus were, by, were through and through Israelites who had become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament. That's where it started. But what happened was we've started to see over the last several chapters Gentiles, that is Greek and Roman pagans, people who didn't grow up with the story of Israel, didn't grow up with the Old Testament, coming into the faith, responding to the free offer of the gospel. At first, remember that that response started as a trickle. Philip, Cornelius, one or two people here and there. But by the time Paul gets to Antioch, What started as a trickle has become a flood. What started as a few Gentiles in a largely Israelite community is now in places like Antioch, it's an entirely Gentile church, or virtually so, with only a few uh, cultural, racial, and religious uh, Jews as a part of the church. And so a question has come. On what basis did these Gentiles come in? Paul's answer was that by believing in the name of Jesus and being baptized into the church, they belong in full to the people of God. That there is no division, as he's going to say in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, that at the cross, God has torn down the division that had divided the Jews from the pagans and the Gentiles. But after Paul, remember Paul didn't stay anywhere for very long. Paul was in Antioch for about a year, then he went to another place just spreading the gospel, planting churches. And what we're told is that after he left, a group of people came in from Judea, so from the more predominantly Jewish background group of believers, uh, some who by the time we get to Acts 15, we're told are part of the, the tribe of the Pharisees. They come and say, no, 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 it's wonderful. It's wonderful that Gentiles are believing. That's good news. But in order to be included in full in the people of God, they have to become Israelites. Right? So before they can become Christians, they have to become Jews. In their way of looking at it, right, there was a the overarching faith was Judaism. It was Old Testament belief. 
And then Christianity was a subset of that. It was the, the people who had come to see Jesus as Messiah. And so before you could get into the subset, you had to get into the overarching, first become an Israelite. And guys, you might read that and go, okay, that's fine. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. The devil's in the details, and the details mean that you have to be circumcised, no matter if you are a baby or if you are a 50-year-old man. And circumcision becomes a shorthand for keeping the entirety of the law. So remember, circumcision was the entrance right into Israel. And so this fight over circumcision, it wasn't just a fight over circumcision, it was a fight over Do you have to take on all of Jewish identity and obedience to the law in order to become a Christian? Notice, it's not, it's not does the law or does the Old Testament have any relevance to living a life glorifying to God, right? That's not what the question is about. The question is not about the goodness of the Old Testament. We believe it is God's word. It's God's truth. But the question is, is a precondition to involvement and inclusion, do you have to take it all on yourself? Do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to keep kosher? Do you have to do all of that? Now, we should pause. It's always easy 2,000 years later to look back on this argument. And, you know, the losers of arguments always look bad uh, in history. And so it's easy to look back at these people and go, what legalistic garbage Right To think that adults need to be circumcised, to think that the Gentiles have to become Jewish. It's easy to look back on them through this side of the Jerusalem council and go, what, what silliness. But I have sympathy for these people. In a way that's hard for us to imagine, these things that seem to us entirely external and meaningless, right? Things like circumcision and dietary laws, not eating uh, unclean foods, not eating food prepared in unclean ways. All of those things to us seem, well, those are, those are just external things. But these distinctives were a huge part of Israelite identity in a world in which they lived their entire lives, most especially by this point, Everyone who's come into the church had lived their life as a minority under the Roman Empire, right? Even if they were living in Jerusalem, if you were a Jew living in Israel, you still knew that your taxes at the end of the day went to Caesar, that your life at the end of the day was under the rule of a pagan king, that if he wanted to, he could demand anything of you, right? And so a way of maintaining cultural distinctiveness a way of maintaining faithfulness to Israel's God, what marked them out as different in that world were these things. Circumcision, dietary practices, worship, dress. That these things marked them out and said, you know what, we may be living in this world, but this is what marks us out as belonging to God. This is what marks us out as being different than everyone else around us. And their hope was, their hope had always been that eventually the Gentiles would come to their God. But they assumed, as you would if you read the Old Testament, that that meant that the Gentiles would become Israelites. That one day, even these pagan Romans and Greeks who had killed and enslaved their parents would someday get circumcised, would someday start eating kosher, would someday come to the temple, would someday start reading the law. And so there was a deep investment in this way of life, this idea that when the Messiah comes, 
He will vindicate us. Right? We know what that's like. You can imagine what it would be like to give your whole life to something. And then at the end of the day, to find out that other people didn't have to do the same thing. Yeah. Right? It's like, you know, imagine you're a, a, a senior on the football team and you've been training for six long years. You've been lifting weights and practicing all summer and all that. And then a freshman comes in without doing any of that. And he's got a better arm than you do. He's a better quarterback than you are. And you find yourself kicked to the side. Right, or imagine you work your way, you've been working at the same company for years and years. You come in early, you go home late, then they hire some genius that comes in fresh out of college and he gets above you. Right? We know what it's like to feel like, oh, I put all that work in and now you're telling me these folks just waltz in? They just waltz in, they don't even have to get circumcised. I've, my whole life I've never eaten a pork chop and these guys come in. <laughs> These guys come and have never kept that law, and not only do I have to deal with them, right? Not only do I have to worship with them or eat with them, but you're telling me they can become elders, they can become preachers, they can, they can do everything I can do. They're, they're full-on equals. You can see where that would be a tough pill to swallow for these folks. And so they come, and as Paul says in Galatians, they start stirring up trouble in the, in the Gentile church after he leaves, and so they begin dealing with it, these people that Paul elsewhere will call Judaizers, people who are uh, teaching that they had to become Jews first. We get this story in Galatians chapter 2 when these people were there and they were starting to spread this idea. It was getting some traction, not only among uh, Jewish converts, but among Greek converts as well. Peter comes allegedly to help, and Paul says at first when Peter got there, when he got to Antioch, he was believing the right thing. Remember, God gave Peter a vision of the Gentile inclusion and the erasure of the line between clean and unclean. And at first, Peter was on the right side of this. He was having meals with Gentiles. But then when these Judaizers came, he stopped. He stopped eating his meals with the Gentiles. He stopped socializing with them. And we can assume that when it says eating meals with, that it means according to Gentile practices. So not eating kosher, uh, eating at one table, Jew and Gentile. And these guys come, these Judaizers come, and Peter gives in to peer pressure, and he disassociates himself from the Gentiles. I'm going to read this section. This is Galatians uh, section of 2, 14 through 16. Paul uh, says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I opposed Peter to his face. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I love the way that he confronts Peter here. He says, when I saw that his actions were what? Not in step with the truth of the gospel. Right? He doesn't say, Peter, you're being... He doesn't say you're being a coward, giving in to peer pressure. He doesn't say stop being such a coward. He doesn't say, Peter, you're being a racist by, by disassociating yourself from people who are different than you. He doesn't say, Peter, you're being a legalist by judging these people. He says, Peter, what you're doing is not in keeping with the gospel. What you're doing is wrong and it's sin, but why is it wrong? It's wrong because it goes against the very logic of the good news that we've been preaching. Look, you and I know, he says, that we are included. We were Jews. We were born Jews, not like these Gentiles. And we were only saved by grace through faith. 
And so to now put barriers up, it's not just wrong because it's prejudiced or wrong because it's cowardly. It's wrong because it's not in step with the good news. In other words, the message of good news has to get lived out in social relationships and in community that's in keeping with that good news, right? It's possible in Paul's mind to have a good message, but to have your life not in keeping with that good news message, right? It's possible to have gospel preaching without gospel love in your life. It's possible for a church or even an apostle to have gospel doctrine, to, have, to believe the right things about the good news, but then in the culture of the church, to have a church culture, a relational culture, that's not in step with the good news that you say you believe. And so what Paul says, he says it's about getting your life to line up with the good news that you believe. It's about keeping step so that your life is an expression of what the way someone would live and love if they truly believed that nothing about them, no expression of their goodness, their smartness, any part of them merits their acceptance before God. Once you believe that, then it means that if it's not your goodness, then it's not anybody else's goodness either. If it's not your culture, it's not anybody else's culture either. And so Paul calls Peter, he invites Peter He doesn't say, Peter, you racist coward, stop. He says, brother, you are not living in line. You're not keeping step with good news. The good news isn't just good news about how to go to heaven when you die. It is that, praise God. But it's good news about who's included in the family of God. And you know better. You've preached better. And so now live in step with the gospel. And so by the time they get to Jerusalem, Peter has had his little red wagon fixed. And he is back in his right mind. He's now, when this question comes to the apostles, he's the one who stands up and speaks first and says, Brothers, you know, verse uh, verse 7, that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Love this. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He says, look, you want to ask these guys to keep the law perfectly? Let's talk about your life. Let's talk about my life. Let's talk about our fathers and our grandfathers. You know that this hasn't been possible for us. But we believe that that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And then Paul stands up with Barnabas, and he agrees. And then James stands up, and he agrees. And the rest of the chapter, which we didn't read, is that basically write a letter that says all the stuff they just said, only they send it to the Gentiles. And their answer is basically this, uh, the advice that they send to the Gentiles. Two main parts. The Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to be included, but they do need to keep some of the dietary and religious and ceremonial guidelines of the Israelites 
while being a part of that community. Did you notice that, the way that James ended things? James says, therefore, my judgment, which they adopt and they tell the Gentiles, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from things that have been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So they're told basically, listen, you don't have to become Jewish, but you can't stay pagan, <laughs> right? You don't, have to, you don't have to get circumcised, but also you can't hold on to all of the markers of your previous culture and religion. Right? You can't uh, continue to eat food that's been sacrificed on the altar of an idol. You can't eat food that's been strangled or food that's soaking in its own blood. And then the, the hard one here is that they say also sexual immorality. It's not hard because you shouldn't abstain from it. Uh, it's hard because the other three all have to do clearly with uh, religious observance and cultural observance. But sexual immorality, porneia, uh, is that's part of the Ten Commandments, right? That's not just a part of the Jewish ceremonial part. That's a part of an enduring part of the moral law. And so what we think, uh, commentators go around and around about this, but what we, are, we think that what they're getting at here is that in the Greek and Roman religious world, oftentimes sexual immorality was actually a part of religious practice. You'd go to a temple, um, you'd engage in sexual immorality with a prostitute there in the temple, and that was a part of your worship of the fertility deities. And so what we think is going on here is saying, hey, look, all of those old Gentile practices, you don't have to take on all of the Jewish way of life, but you also do have to leave that old way of life. Not just because it's morally wrong, like that would be morally wrong no matter what, but even things that later on Paul is going to say the gospel frees you to do, like eat food sacrificed to idols, you ought to voluntarily not do. And his reason is because Moses is read in every city. Right, that every city has a Jewish community. Every city has a synagogue. And it will be offensive to your Jewish convert brothers and sisters to eat with you if you continue to do it in this way. And it will be an offense to those who we hope to win with the good news, Jewish not yet believers in Christ. So you ought to keep to these dietary laws. Okay, what on earth does this mean for a church in Jacksonville, Florida 2,000 years later? Right? What does this mean? It has to mean more than just when you go through our membership class, I don't ask if you're circumcised and we don't make you get circumcised. Right? It has to mean more than just, hey, uh, don't eat any food sacrificed to idols. Right? We have to find a way to live this out here and now. What does this mean for a contemporary church? First, it means that we want to be a church where Jesus and Jesus alone is the only basis for belonging as a member of the church, right? This is, as a matter of practice, you'll notice when we receive new members, the only vows they take are a vow towards mere Christianity. It's, I acknowledge myself to be a sinner, Christ to be a savior. I'll seek to follow him uh, in repentance and faith. I'll submit to the life of this church and I'll seek to serve it to the best of my ability. Right, that the only basis for inclusion in this church is the ability to profess faith in Jesus. To say, Christ is my Savior and I want to follow him. To put Jesus at our center means that as we move closer to Jesus, our center, we move closer to one another. 
It means that we work to eliminate other boundaries that might keep people from coming in, right? That we work to acknowledge and find unacknowledged cultural boundaries that might make someone feel less than included. A church where the only basis for belonging and believing is to profess Jesus, right? And to recognize that on any given Sunday, we have people. We have people here uh, right now. We have people here every Sunday who are not yet there, right, to a place of, of trust and faith in Christ. And so we exist as an open invitation, right, for all people to come and to embrace Jesus and therefore instantly to become a member of our family, right? It's not to believe and then to clean your act up, right? It's not to believe and then start dressing a little better and get a better job and clean yourself up. Right? It's not behaving a certain way before belonging. It's belonging because you belong to Jesus. And he alone sets the boundaries of his family. It's a church that works to build no other barriers to inclusion in the family of God. Listen, there is a natural barrier to belonging to a church. Do you know any idea how hard it is to grow a community where at the very outset you say, hey, listen, the only requirement is that you admit yourself to be a sinner worthy of eternal judgment. That's, that's the front door. Right? There is a natural, Paul says there's an offense caused by the gospel. That the gospel is offensive. This knowledge that uh, apart from Christ you stand without hope, that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Right? Paul says that it's a stumbling block, that the gospel itself is offensive in that way. But to be a church that's defined by Jesus as the only basis for belonging means we look to find out things that we do or say or believe that are offensive that aren't the gospel. Right? It's hard. And the offense of the gospel, we are not at liberty to minimize, to negotiate, or to do away with. Right? We're not, as a Christian, as as a member of a Christian church, to be faithful, we're not at liberty to change the gospel to make it less offensive. But what we are called to do is to find out what else is there about me that's offensive, right? Like, I'm not going to change the gospel to change my preaching, but if my breath stinks, I want to know about it. If I can change that to make myself a little less offensive, I want to try to do that. And so to be a church that's centered on Jesus means we ask ourselves the question, Are there parts of belonging here that make it hard for people to come in and to belong, to find their culture and their voice belonging in this place and in this community? If we really want to be, one phrase that I love, a multi-everything church, right? A multi-everything church, multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational Right? If we want to be a multi-everything church, it's going to mean that we, don't, we look for ways, subtle ways maybe, that we define ourselves in ways that make other people feel like they don't belong. And that's not a one-time thing. That's not a quick fix. That's not a we change something, we uh, change a little bit of the music, change a little bit of this. It's a, it's a posture. It's a way of being. I think it's true to say that the church in America became segregated by active racist action, and it remains segregated largely through inaction and comfort with the status quo. Right? We got to where we are through active racial hatred, prejudice, and inclusion. 
or exclusion. But it doesn't take active racial hatred to perpetuate it. Right? It doesn't take active racial exclusion to stay. It just takes comfort. It just takes staying in the way that it's easy to stay. In 1787, there was a black man who went to go worship at an all-white church. This is 1787. He got down on his knees and had the audacity to pray and to kneel and to lift up prayers to Jesus in that church. And the white people around him were so appalled that before he could say amen, they picked him up and they carried him out. The next Sunday, the black community of that town rented out the local vacant blacksmith shop and held the first service of what became known as the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Similar stories happened. If you ever just, if you ever just wonder, hey, why do we have white Baptist churches and black Baptist churches, white Methodist churches and black Methodist churches, white Presbyterian churches and black Baptist churches? Um, <laughs> it's, be, it's because of this, right? It's because of active, willful hatred. By the time Martin Luther King comes along in the 1960s, this is almost 200 years after 1787, he could still say that, what is it, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning remains the most segregated hour in American life. Today, there are 300,000 churches in America. Uh, sociologists define a multi-ethnic church as a church in which no one ethnicity makes up more than 80% of the membership, which is, uh, to put it mildly, a generous definition. But even at that definition, 2.5 of them are multi-ethnic. Why? It's no longer because somebody is at the door, hopefully, right? there, there still is active racial exclusion, but more often than not, it's because it becomes easier to be in culturally accommodated White churches, black churches, Asian churches, Latino churches, and other, right? It becomes easier for birds of a feather to flock together. It becomes more comfortable and less uncomfortable. To build a church where there are no other barriers to inclusion, it requires us to examine ourselves, to examine our practices and our ways. And then finally, it means a church that embraces discomfort for the sake of the gospel, Notice, I love the apostles' conclusion here because it makes everybody a little bit uncomfortable, right? The, Jew, the Jewish Christians get uncomfortable because they hear, you know what, Gentiles, you don't have to get circumcised. That's an uncomfortable reality for them. But then the Gentiles become a little bit uncomfortable when they hear, but you do have to work to change where you eat, how you eat, what it comes from. That you, you take this freedom of God's grace, this freedom of the gospel, but then you subsume your freedom over your love for your neighbor, your love for your brother and sister, that you're willing to lose for the sake of the community. You're willing to lay something of yourself down to be uncomfortable for the sake of the other, to be uncomfortable for the sake of inclusion, that if a church is truly seeking to have no other barriers than Jesus, then it's going to mean embracing discomfort as an act of love. Right, some of you, you can be, we're not going to talk, but you can be honest, uh, in your heart at least. When we sang this morning, I mean, it was, it was so good, probably everybody enjoyed it, but uh, there were probably some of you that uh, with that first song, Your Love Endures Forever, you go, that is my jam. Yeah. I know that song, I love that song. 
And then we get to come ye sinners. And some other people go, oh man, this is my jam. We sang, we used to sing this at camp. And to be a church of multi-everything love and inclusion means that we all learn to sing some new songs. Right? I mean, sometimes you get that sweet feeling of, yeah, baby, they're playing my song and I love it. In other days, you go, oh man, I don't know that I can count, clap to that rhythm. I don't know that I can tap my foot that way. But we embrace discomfort together. And you know what? The beautiful part of that is, and, that's, and honestly, music's easy to talk about. Right? For the past, you know, we have been in the thick of some of the stuff that's harder to talk about. There's different ways of living and experiencing life in our place, in our time, in our culture. But you know what happens when you begin to lay down your comfort and your preference in suffering and love at times for your neighbors, your brothers, and your sisters? You find yourself right there with Jesus, who knows what it is to sacrifice and to lay down his life to gather a multi-everything bride to himself. You know what it is to embrace a cross, to lay down something of your own preferences. Not just because it's hard, right? There's nothing intrinsically better about doing something hard. But because Jesus is destined to receive worship and honor from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to the extent that we lay down our lives in pursuit of that bride, we join Jesus in his life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the the careful, thoughtful, theological deliberation of those first apostles who wrestled with their culture, who wrestled with their history, enough to come to this gospel-soaked conclusion that there is no basis for belonging in the body of Christ aside from faith in our living Savior. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that more and more you would knit us together, draw us together as an uncommon family, defined not by any of our externals, but solely belonging to you. And may we find ourselves, Lord Jesus, more and more belonging to one another because we belong to you. Build us, heal us, shape us, Lord Jesus, into a faithful expression of this multi-everything church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.